1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as, God, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter writes these words to make sure we haven't missed the whole point and purpose of the gospel. That in our salvation, God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's the end point of the gospel, and it's the end point of uh, our text in front of us today in 1 Peter 4 and verse 11. And specifically, uh, what Peter sets out for us as he builds towards that end point is the way in which we bring glory to God in the here and now, too, now that we have been saved. And what it comes down to is us being rescued out of the dead way of sin and into the new way of life. Here's the logical contrast that Peter sets up in these couple of paragraphs to capture that gospel reality. If the gospel really does bring dead sinners to life, then that will be self-evident in their new life. Or if Christ died only to leave people you know, still living in sin... How is God glorified? Our literal physical death is still coming, of course, and Christ will raise us out of that. But so too, just as we began this life in in spiritual death, uh, in sin, uh, Christ has raised us out of that too, even now uh, into a new life. That's Peter's uh, premise here, and, and, and his words here are very helpful because there are many people who seem to only really take on board half of the gospel. You know, they love the idea of forgiveness in the Christian gospel, that Christ died to pay for our sins, but they don't then seem to step from that truth into any kind of newness of life. Uh, they take Jesus' forgiveness, thank you, but without any desire for change. They turn from that gospel, that beautiful gospel, and they carry on uh, ahead uh, in sin. It's almost as if sometimes the forgiveness kind of gives them a free conscience to keep sinning without any concern about their sin anymore. But that kind of approach to Jesus, uh, saying thanks for the forgiveness he died for, but then carry on as usual in sin, is, is more or less saying that the gospel brings dead sinners to life only to carry on being dead isn't it? 
it's a zombie gospel, if you think about it, that Jesus would save people to become the living dead. And it's no gospel in the end, because the point of us being brought to life is not to continue in the ways of death, but to live now and live in life. If there is no new life, there is no gospel. The saved person is one who who no longer wants to be dead in their sin. And so as much as they might struggle with sin, just as all believers will struggle with sin, a saved person now will nevertheless want to be living the way of life. That'll be what their hearts are striving for. If we haven't come to desire a new way of life in Jesus and we just still live for our old sinful desires, then, then we we really must ask the question whether we have been saved. Saved from what would be the question that we need to ask ourselves. If we still live the way of death without any desire to change, then what kind of gospel have we found exactly? Jesus saves people from the way of death and into the way of life, to the glory of God. I think that's more or less the passage in front of us here in uh, the beginning of chapter 4. And it's a very good pulse check for us to take to make sure that we haven't taken on that that zombie kind of gospel, the foolish idea uh, around uh, uh, these days that that Christ would save us but but only to go on then living as dead people. Uh, So like much of the New Testament does, Peter does that in these couple of paragraphs. He wants to guard us against that false zombie gospel. We were once the living dead. That's our backstory. But Christ has made us alive. This, This is the gospel. Christ raises the dead to life. Sometimes, though, we live out our faith as if we haven't really come to life at all yet. We take on the gospel as if, you know, the penalty of our sin has been paid which it has, hallelujah and amen, but but we think any actual change probably isn't going to really kick in until the next life. We sometimes think like that, don't we? Uh, which kind of, if you think about it, it kind of leaves us in the here and now, caught somewhere between the living and the dead. But there's no such thing as being half saved, is there? Uh, Noah, to whom Peter connected us in the previous section, he was not half saved in that flood, was he? And nor did the fallen world around him only half perish in the flood. Life and death are are binary states, aren't they? And, And so too with this spiritual truth. If Christ has saved dead sinners, then they've been saved into life. There is no zombie gospel whether dead in sin or raised to be some kind of living dead. Christ has made us alive. And just as we are destined now to dwell forever with God in holiness, so too the gospel changes our heart's desire to pursue his way of life here on out, in this life, while we're waiting for that eternity. So Peter says here in verse 1, Since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Instead of satisfying and gratifying every temptation that comes for us, therefore we need to actually live from now on for righteousness. And that's no popular call, isn't it, this part of the Christian gospel? Because saying no to sin is hard. 
there, there'll be suffering and disappointment and disadvantage and loss in, in rejecting sin and, and pursuing this path of life because sin, sin tends to give us a temporary fix for our fleshy kind of appetites in this life, doesn't it? It feels good at the time. That's why we do it. So to say no to that and to resist sin, resist sin is going to mean going hungry in some way when, when those temptations do come. But of course this is the gospel. and In the longer run, sin is the way of death. And so by dying to sin now, we have actually found life. And that kicks in now is the point here, because we've been saved now. So in between us being saved by this glorious gospel right now and and the eternal life yet to come, uh, we are to live out the rest of this life for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. If we have truly repented and trusted in Jesus' gospel, then, then we're not counted as sinners anymore in the eyes of God. So why would we keep on in that sin? Peter gives a few examples here. By, by no means is this an inclusive list, of course, but it's enough to strike his point home. Uh, we might think about what's under some of these words that he has given us in our ESV here. Sensuality is just talking about indecency. And a, a self-abandonment, a recklessness towards that indecency. Passions is talking about unbridled lust. To, to crave and long after unhealthy things or, or even to lust after healthy things but without any kind of restraint. Drunkenness is, is self-explanatory, I think, isn't it? Just to be given over to excessive drinking. Orgies in the Greek here actually means just revelry, rioting, wild behaviour. Drinking parties, I think, is probably still building on those last few words. Organised, reckless, group drunkenness and and, and revelry. Uh, Lawless idolatry is is the worship of false gods. It's putting created things in the place of God in our life. These are just simple examples from Peter of, of that way of death from which we have been saved. We should no longer continue to live that kind of deadness because we've been made alive. There's been enough of these things, is the point. Jesus wants to bring us out of these things, is the point. These are the kind of things that Jesus himself told us defiled us, such as in Mark 7 where Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, Jesus said, and they defile a person. That's Jesus on on the dead heart we used to have until God gave us a new heart in Christ. And so we we just can't continue pursuing those old ways now as if that's still somehow who we are. We're no longer considered that person anymore. We're no longer considered Gentiles, Peter is saying in verse 3, outside God's people. That, That time is past. We are the people of God now. And our hearts should be seeking the way of life. We're surrounded, though, by the living dead, aren't we? 
all those who haven't yet received the gospel of Jesus, and they do still pursue such things, and they'll want us to continue pursuing those things with them, verse 4 says. They're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you for that. The flood imagery is still running from that previous section we were looking at last week to to show that these things are the way of death. Uh, debauchery j- just means reckless waste, I guess we could say. It. Or, or quite literally, if we want to think of it quite literally in the Greek under here, it's just unsavedness. Unsavedness. Those around us who haven't yet come to Christ are drowning in unsavedness. It's a flood of destruction waiting to happen, as in the days of Noah, chapter 3 and verse 20. They're surprised we don't live like that anymore. And they even might speak evil of us for living different lives now. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And that sober thought opens up the other side of all of this stuff for you and I who have come to Christ. We are actually supposed to be witnesses among those people to the gospel of life. They're facing judgment. Eternal spiritual death is coming for them. But in in Jesus' gospel, you and I have been shown the way unto life. Verse 6, this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. In the literal sense, I think Peter means there. You know, those who now are physically dead and buried, the gospel was preached to them too, so that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. As Peter reminded us in that passage last week, Christ has always been proclaiming the gospel to people through the prophets of old, like like Noah was his example. Uh, So too, he should want to preach through people like you and I today to the people around us so that they too might be saved. But how can we show them the power of the gospel to save them from spiritual death if we ourselves are still living the same way as they are. That false zombie gospel so prevalent today, where we think to be forgiven without desiring any change, that lie bears no witness to those who are perishing around us. If we still carry on our lives as if we too are just the living dead, no different to them in the pursuit of sin, then how will they know that they're facing a judgment of eternal death? How will they see any other hope of life? For their sake, and of course for our sake too, we just have to let go of that foolish idea of of zombie gospel that only kind of half saves us. And we have to now let the gospel increasingly do in us what Jesus wants his gospel to do in us, to transform us as those who are now truly alive. Peter it goes on to describe that for us in the second paragraph. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. 
So our text here today breaks down into a simple and striking contrast like this. There is a way of death, paragraph one, and there is a way of life, paragraph two. And if we have come to Christ, we haven't been left somewhere in between. There is no such place. We need to follow Jesus now and let him bring us fully into who we now are. When his gospel does that in us and actually brings us into a new desire for these ways of righteousness and life that that he desires for us, that process brings glory to God. Which is rather the point of it all, verse 11, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. This is the fuller picture of why Christ died for our sins, that God would be glorified by our transformed lives. Imagine if Jesus did raise those who were dead in sin only for them to go on now still living as dead sinners. Wouldn't that actually be saying that he didn't really manage to defeat death at all? but rather that he just kind of assimilated death into into some kind of zombie state for us? No, to him belongs dominion over death, the literal death and the spiritual death. Dominion and over all things are his, glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen? So the contrast is pretty stark and Peter's point is pretty clear. We're not those who's still caught up in the way of death, which makes these kind of texts a really good calibration check for for believers and for every believer to, to sort of run this check and make sure that they truly have come into the gospel of life as a fundamental check on our hearts. If you can see clearly enough that, that you haven't actually turned from sin, then you need to repent and ask Jesus to forgive you and to change you, to make you alive in the way of life. A judgment hangs over all of us, past, present and future everyone, and the only way to survive is to have been saved from Jesus from your sin and into eternal life. We must process that calibration check really slowly, I think, and and really carefully. There's a danger in hearing these kinds of scripture and and just giving ourselves too quickly the all clear on this stuff. You know, just filing this stuff away as, yeah, yeah, sure, no brainer. Because as obvious and as logical as it might seem to us all, it can all get a bit shadowy down in the depths of our hearts. Our hearts are deceitful above all else, the scriptures say. So how can we know? How can we know that we're not, you know, just just justifying what we do uh, like the living dead do? And particularly with some of these things Peter lists here, like passions or or drunkenness, that that are actually more about the abuse or or the excess or the lust for what might otherwise be wonderful, beautiful gifts from God. How can we know that we're on the right side of this sharp contrast between life and death he's talking about here? How can we take our gospel pulse and be really confident in the result? Well, slowly and with a lot of honest reflection and prayer, for one thing, as I say, 
And there's a couple of other things woven into these two paragraphs that will also help us check our gospel pulse. First, notice that the longer you stare at that first paragraph about the ways of death, the more it seems to be, actually, about those around us who are still dead in their sin and about our witness to those people about life. We are to be heralds of life to them. And if that is our mindset, you know, if our desire extends beyond our own new life to, to the condition of those drowning around us, that, that we want to show them life rather than continue to comport with their way of death, then we might take comfort that we ourselves, yes, are on the right side of this contrast. As Peter has been saying through this letter, we've been called to bless those around us. We've been called to minister as priests in this lost world. And I think when we take hold of that call, it also helps to clarify and galvanise and strengthen our own conviction in this gospel of life. And so too, I reckon, it flows the other way as well, that, that as Christ deeper and deeper and deeper brings us into this new way of life, that the more we're going to turn around and desire to minister that life to others who are still out there in the flood. That task is ahead of us to do, brothers and sisters. But we must take a a, a warning as we go about that work, that our hearts don't deceive us, that we don't end up with the world's sinful hooks back in us, dragging us back down into the floodwaters. Peter seems to warn us there in verse 4, that The nature of sin is just like that. It wants to rope everything else and everyone else in. We want to show them life, don't we? We don't want to get drawn back down into death, so so we must be careful as to how we take the gospel of life to the world. If we ourselves get drawn back into living for sin again, then we've no longer got any hope to rescue those people with. Just that zombie gospel that, that doesn't actually show any real hope at all. But if we walk among them in the gospel of life, we really do have true hope to to hold out to a dead and dying world. This is a real danger as we go about this task. As always, I can't preach down to anyone on this danger. I can only try to preach up to you to try to help you avoid mistakes that I have fallen into on this kind of danger. Be careful as you go about this task that you don't take from from Paul's language in in 1 Corinthians 9, if you know this language, of, of being all things to all people without catching his fundamental premise that he might win some to Christ. Everything he did was to show people the gospel of life. If we just pick out that little phrase and major on that bit about, you know, being, being as a Gentile to the Gentiles without catching the apostles' driving desire in this, then we are in grave danger of not just failing to show anybody out there life, but, but being drawn back ourselves into death. And who knows as we do that kind of thing that our deceitful heart isn't, isn't secretly just actually seeking some kind of affirmation or, or approval or, or acceptance from, from those out there back in the floodwater of sin. But if we take it on right with a desire to save those around us with this gospel of life, then, then our lives will look markedly different to their lives, won't they? And we might know from that all the more that 
that yes, our own hearts are now truly alive in this gospel. A second thing to help us take our gospel pulse well is woven through that second paragraph. Peter's talking to a plural audience. And without that context of of Christian relationship, community, church, the rest of that paragraph can't unfold, can it? To love one another, to, to show hospitality to one another, to serve one another, these things fundamentally require the other party in the visibly different people of God. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. There's a picture of Christian church woven through this call here. And I would suggest that when we are properly connected into that faith community of God, we'll have a much better check on our own personal gospel pulse. Not just because we'll have a collective gospel pulse to to align and check ourselves against, but but we will have other eyes and ears on our lives. They're going to pick up things that our own deceitful hearts might be hiding from us. But do we do this? Do, Do we give of ourselves into Christian community the way Peter's describing here? Do we listen to the wise voices around us? Do do we truly love and serve and share? And watch over others. Again, I can only try to preach up to you on this, to try to warn you of the pitfalls and the mistakes I've made. Uh, For too long, I didn't let myself come into the fellowship of God in church. I didn't really let myself be invested in that kind of way. But how good that change was for me when it came and how good it continues to be for me as I continue to learn how to connect more into church, to be, to be, to be more vulnerable uh, in this uh, horrifying way, uh, to have people getting to know me more in this terrifying kind of way and watch over my walk, how good it is for me, how clearer I am on my own gospel pulse for submitting and committing to a community of God's people. That's a daunting thing to do. At least it was for me and it still is for me. And and yet now means that I share more of my life and my thoughts with others. And the more honestly and the more openly I share, yeah, sure, it means those people are going to ask harder questions all the time of how I'm living out the gospel call. But it's a good thing, isn't it, that we should do that? Jesus hasn't saved us into his church for any lesser reason than that we should all now be slowly transformed into the way of life. Because this is our destiny, isn't it? Life is our destiny. And it's our collective destiny together that we be transformed. Imagine if Jesus raised the church from the dead to just be like his foul zombie wife. No, to him belongs glory 
And when his bride, the church, lets him transform them from the ways of death to the ways of life more and more and more, that will bring him glory all the more. It's a short scripture this week, but it's a pretty tough one. Will you uh, take this scripture away and let it search you? Make make sure you haven't fallen for that lie of the zombie gospel that's out there in this world. Uh, Let it examine you and and make sure that there, there actually is a new heart inside you. A new heart from which, you know, defiling things don't just keep spewing out no end, but, but from which a healthy desire to live God's way has just started to flow. Please don't hear me wrong, as I say. We all will struggle with sin and stumble from time to time. And Jesus is faithful to forgive us when we do. But what does your heart desire is the question here. Is it to continue in the same old way of death from which Jesus wants to save you? Or do you desire now the life that he saves people into? If your heart is still bent on the way of sin, just carrying on the same as you carried on before you found Jesus, then then take a gospel pulse check that, that you have indeed turned Salvation is about turning from sin. It's about repenting and coming to Jesus for forgiveness, yes, but also for something new. Your life should look different now to to what it did look like before you came to Jesus for that. Your life should look different to, to the flood of death all around us. Will you then, if you have come to Christ and received all this and are continuing to grow in these ways, will you see the binary state of life and death that that are set out in the gospel here, that there is no zombie kind of state that Jesus would put you into after you've come to him? Will you embrace life on the back of this scripture and and be putting to death the old sin and, and seeking more and more his new way of life now, knowing that it is yours? Will you let your life glorify God. And shall we all do that as he has called us together? It's a good question starting to pop out from Peter's letter in my mind, uh, hopefully in yours too. But for now, how about I close in prayer over these things for us? Heavenly Father, we thank you as always for your scriptures and, and for this here, this, this hard but, but clear contrast that Peter has set out in scripture for us. The reminder that we whom you have saved have come from death to life. Help us to lock that truth in. Help us to live that life out. Help us to shine your gospel clearly into this dark world. Help us to, to live together in a way that shines forth love so brightly that the world will truly see something different. Help us to stop resisting your work. Help us to come fully into your gospel that you would transform us more and more like your son. And in the power of his gospel at work in us, may we all glorify you, world without end, but so too even now. And in his name we pray these things. Amen.